We're going to begin back in Genesis, so you could turn there. You know, we're going to, I'm talking about missions this morning, of all things. But I hope you'll see and understand where I'm coming from and where we're going. I'm titling this, Recovering the Nations Through Missions. Now, back in, in the book of Genesis, uh, you know, any missionary activity that you talk about, such as what James and DeWio does, or whether it's Ken and Nancy Guth or Jackie Powell or whoever it is, missions will lead us back to Genesis. And in, in particular, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to move through these things rather quickly. But, you know, Adam and Eve were to be technically the original missionaries. When God created Adam and Eve and he told them to multiply and fill the earth, the goal was to take Eden and expand its territory to where it would fill the whole earth. And this entire earth would be one Eden where God would fellowship with man and we would enjoy fellowship with him. And you may remember well that in the garden, it was common for Adam and Eve to speak with God. It was nothing unusual. Heaven and earth were linked together. Now we know that now that's not the case. We don't have direct connection as far as just verbally speaking to God whenever we feel like it or whenever he would make his appearance. Now, of course, we know that the brief story is Adam and Eve failed in what they were to do and God had warned them about a tree in the garden. He says, if you eat of it, you will die. And along comes the serpent, that deceiver, he deceives Eve, she takes of the tree, Adam, he finds out, and he willingly and knowingly, knowing what the situation is, takes of the fruit, and he eats alongside of her. Now, the serpent had told him, surely you won't die. But we know that they did. But you say, well, it took 900 and something years for Adam to die. What's the deal here? Well, I think death here was a metaphor for the fact that they would lose dominion. You will die in the sense that you will lose your right to share my rule with me in my kingdom, in my Eden. And that's why God removed them from Eden. They lost it. And in that day, yes, they died. Even though physically, they didn't die until hundreds of years later. Now, following that, of course, we find the birth of Seth and Enosh. And it tells us there that at the end of chapter uh, 4, that says, Then men began to call on the name of Yahweh. Now, I, I take that phrase, it's, it's a puzzling one in a certain sense, but I take that to mean uh, that this is a restoring of the, a godly line of those who would continue to call on God. And the reason I say that is because we know that in Genesis 6, there's a different term. And things have gone downhill for most of the people of the earth. And as a matter of fact, things become so bad that in Genesis chapter 6, we find that the uh, sons of God, it tells us there, 
came down and cohabited with the daughters of men. Now it's an interesting thing that we see here, this, this unity of heaven and earth has now been split. And they came down to this realm. And we find out in scripture that that's a common thing. In other words, they can come and enter into this realm by taking on a body of flesh. We cannot go to that realm unless it's by special dispensation. Who did that? Elijah or Enoch and who else? Paul, who else? John, book of Revelation, yeah. People have gone from this realm, this level or plane of reality, if you want to call it that, <coughs> to another plane of reality. But it's not the ordinary. And so these sons of God, in rebellion, left their domain and came here, and they had offspring with the daughters of men. Of course, the scripture calls them uh, the Nephilim, where it's translated as giants and so on. And uh, so God determines that he's going to start again, as it were. And so he brings a flood. All the people of the earth are destroyed except Noah and his family. And they ride out safely on this ark. And ultimately, God tells Noah to do the same thing that he told Adam and Eve to do. So you see, you have a, you have a renewed and cleansed earth after the flood. And he tells them, multiply and fill the earth. He is going to claim his creation as his own. Well, contrary to what God desired, you know, that, that was an utter failure again. And now there, there, there did remain a, a faithful and godly remnant, but on the whole, the peoples of the earth failed. They became corrupt, and we end up with the Tower of Babel experience. Now, following the, the flood, you know, God gives us a table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, which you have as a handout. And it, it lists there the nations that were in existence at that time, 70 of them. Uh, Shem had 26, Ham had 30, and Japheth had 14 that you'll see listed there. If you add them all up, you'll get, you'll get 70 nations. And that'll be significant, but not today. We'll talk about that another time. So in this Tower of Babel experience, it tells us there that they spoke one language. Now, you know, God had told them to multiply and fill the earth. But rather than spreading about and doing that, they decided to remain in one place because of the commonality of their language. And in so doing also, they decided they wanted to build a tower that would reach to the heavens. And the point of it all is they wanted to again reconnect 
heaven and earth, just like it had been originally. The difference was those in rebellion were wanting to do that and not according to God's plan or God's desire. Now, having all said all of that, um, Yahweh, who took note of their activity, saw what was going on, uh, determined that he would confuse the language as, so they couldn't understand each other. And it says there, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. And so the scriptures then give us the genealogy of Shem that leads us up to Abraham. Again, in distributing them throughout all the earth, God calls out a man and he determines start all over again. That's just our way of saying it. And he's going to begin a new process with this man, Abraham. Now, in order to comprehend all that or catch our footing, we need to back up just a little bit. We jump ahead in Scripture, but we're going to back up in time a little bit. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, there's a passage there that talks about uh, the time when, uh, and you know from in the book of Deuteronomy, that the Israelites were on the banks of the Jordan. They were getting ready to cross over into the land that God had promised them. And while there, um, they, Moses reiterated the law, expanded on that law, uh, gave a few more details. And in chapter 32, in verses uh, 7 and 8, it tells us there, Moses said, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. And you need to fixate on the word divided there. He divided mankind. That is, at the Tower of Babel, when he separated the nations because of their language. As a matter of fact, the Septuagint uses the same Greek word over there as is used in the New Testament to talk about this division. Now, he says he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, the King James says the sons of Israel, but some of the newer translations will tell you sons of God and for a reason. And one reason, I'll just give you one. One is the nation of Israel was not in existence at this time. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, they were in existence, but he's talking about a time all the way back at the Tower of Babel. Israel didn't exist then. And so this expression, sons of God, seems to fit better uh, for other reasons too, which I don't really have time to go into this morning, but we can talk about it another time. But in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32, it says, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations and from these nations spread abroad. That is, they were divided. The word spread abroad in the ESV is the same word that we find over in Deuteronomy 32. They were divided on the earth after the flood. And um, matter of fact, the New King James uses the word divided. That's how it translates it. And so we can find out of this passage then uh, in Deuteronomy that there's a link here right directly back to the Tower of Babel event. What took place? Uh, <coughs> 
Of our interest at this point in time, we want to talk about the dividing of the nations and recalling this particular event. You know, Yahweh said uh, that he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. If you look at that table of nations chart, you're going to notice that there's, a, as we said, there's a total of 70 nations and so on. And if you look at the map that you have, you'll see on that map the distribution of those nations. Now just kind of fixate in your mind. I mean, you're familiar with the Middle East and the Mediterranean area, North Africa, Southern Europe, and so on. Uh, over in uh, the eastern part of the Middle East, uh, the, the, the area that comprised this section here where these 70 nations were dispersed. And some of those are familiar names and some not so familiar. Now, but the fact is, and the point is, is this was the known world at that time, the 70 nations. Now, what was going on here? Well, look at verse 9, if you look in Deuteronomy 32. Verse 9 says, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now we're coming back to the present reality of those that are standing on the banks of the Jordan getting ready to enter into the promised land. And he's reminding them, that was then, God divided the nations and scattered them out. But you are right here. <coughs> and you're ready to cross over into the land that I have promised to your father Abraham. Now, when we talk about those sons of God, it's important to recognize that God gave them their inheritance. As it were, he just said, okay, you rebel against me, and you rebelled against me, and he sent them off and dispersed them. Now, out of that group of 70 nations, one of them, including Shem, he calls out Abraham from Ur the Chaldees. In this calling of Abraham, he determines that there's going to be descendants because of Abraham's faith and the promise that God gave concerning that land. Now remember, the land of Canaan was one of those lands of the 70 nations. He gave it to Canaan. Abraham and his descendants who were slaves down in Egypt who came out of Egypt through the wilderness had nothing. Zero. But God had promised them through Abraham this land. That's why they had to go in and fight the battles they did to remove the idols and those former giants, those Nephilim that were presently in the land and remove them. That's why some of them at least, God said, wipe them out. They need to be totally cleansed. Take out the foreign gods, the idols, and you go in and you cleanse that land and you settle it and you worship me. And I, Yahweh, will be your God and you will follow me. And that was their instruction. And of course you remember at Sinai, God met with them and they said, yeah, we'll do that. We want Yahweh to be our God. But of course, we know the history of Israel. We know exactly what happened. 
that they failed in that endeavor, just like Adam and Eve failed in their endeavor, just like the rest of the nations failed and Noah and his sons failed in multiplying and filling the earth. And the whole earth, as a result, had become corrupt. Now, on their way up to the banks of the Jordan, you remember they passed through a particular land over which there was a man who was a king by the name of Balak. Balak, it says in Numbers 22, verse 7, it says, The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. Balak did not like the idea that Israel, with her God, was going to settle beside him. And he wanted somebody to put a curse on them. And so he hires Balaam, a diviner, one who would make contact with deity to bring this curse. Now, scriptures tell us that Balaam was a worshiper of Yahweh. In chapter 23 and verse 9, it says, From the top of the crags I see him. Now, this is, this is Balaam. After he had been hired and they had paid the fees of divination to him, he had gone up on this high hill to observe the nation of Israel down in this valley. Hundreds of thousands of them. And as he's looking down upon them, he says, From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. I think I've shared with you many years ago, uh, I remember it just stuck in my mind that Arlen saying that, you know, Israel was the only nation on the earth that could claim God as their God. I didn't really grasp it at the time. But over time, I began to see some things and then it all started to gel together. And I began to understand that really, truly, Israel is the only nation that can claim Yahweh. The rest of the nations are under the gods of those 70 nations that God dispersed at the Tower of Babel. And they're still there today. And guess what? By extension, that includes us. Because where did we come from? You say the United States and Canada and the Bahamas and South America, they're not mentioned in the Bible. No, but the peoples are. The peoples are mentioned. They migrated from Europe, from Africa, and various other places to South America, to North America, and have populated this land. I mean, I'm Scottish background. I know that my ancestry at least goes far uh, back as the Norse, because the Norse came over to Scotland, settled that land, and my clan goes back to Scotland. We're from the clan Gunn, G-U-N-N. That's where the Robinsons come from. So what, what all happened here then? Balaam, when he looked on Israel, said, they do not count themselves among the nations. They were separate and distinct. And they belonged to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Most High God. 
So what happened after that? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, over there it says, the Lord, Yahweh has taken you, Israel, and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people, his inheritance, as you are this day. So what's the whole point here? As Israel was being sent in to claim this land and occupy it, this was to be merely the first step in God's reclaiming what was rightfully his. You know, when you read through the scriptures, I know you've read it scores of times, that it talks about Yahweh being the creator of heaven and earth and the seas and all that is in them. And he owns everything. This belongs to him. And he is in the process, even today, of reclaiming this earth. Now, he began that with Israel. But of course, we all know that uh, Israel failed in what God had called them to do. <clears throat> Later on, <clears throat> you know, when, when, when God said that you are my portion, my inheritance, you remember what took place after Solomon when the nations, or when the nations, when the uh, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. And you remember what the leader of the northern kingdom said, Jeroboam? He says, what portion, what inheritance do we have with you sons of Jesse? We don't have a portion in David. Each of you to your tents, Israel. You know, they were just like Esau who turned their back on their inheritance. And they lost it as a result. God sent one of those foreign nations which they were to occupy to come and occupy the northern kingdom and carry them off into captivity. In other words, and I'm, I know I'm going fast, but you know, the idolatry of the northern kingdom became so great that God did to that kingdom what he did to those 70 nations and just simply said, you want to serve the idols? Then you go out and live among those nations. And that's where they are today still. And then finally, of course, you know that Judah the southern kingdom did the same thing. They forsook, they forsook Yahweh. God sent them off into captivity with the Babylonians. And of course, the northern kingdom with the, the Assyrians. Now, where are you going with all that? And what does all that have to do with missions? Well, in the New Testament, and this is going quick again, I understand, but we have the arrival on the scene of the long-awaited Messiah that God had promised. And when he came on the scene, John the Baptist announced his presence and he came manifesting himself through miracles and signs and wonders and so on to the people of Israel and they still rejected him. Now, even the disciples, remember we read over and over in the, in the Gospels how when Jesus predicted his death and burial and resurrection, they didn't get it. And they couldn't see it. It wasn't until it actually happened and they looked back on all that Jesus had taught them that they grabbed a hold of the idea. 
And I've mentioned before how I've always been amazed, you know, from the time of the crucifixion through Pentecost, which is 50 days, all of a sudden, Peter comes on with one of the most powerful messages in Acts chapter 2 that you could ever want to hear. And I just love that sermon. I never get tired of reading. And in that sermon, he announces what's exactly going on. So in Acts chapter 2, I want to begin reading in verse 1. In Acts chapter 2, verse 1, this is the ESV I'm reading from. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of, the, uh, as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, there's a couple of words in there that I think are important for us. One is the word divided. When Back in Genesis chapter 10, it talked about the nations being divided. The Septuagint uses the same word to talk about the dividing or the separating of the nations. Also, this word bewildered in, <coughs> excuse me, um, the word bewildered is the same word used in back in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel experience when it says God confused or confounded their languages and it made the nation separate because of the fact they couldn't communicate with each other. King James uses the word confound. It's the same word used here, only translated bewildered. So there is a link here to this experience back at the Tower of Babel. Now what else can we look at? Well, look at your map. Look at your map of Acts chapter 2. And you'll notice, though the names of the nations have changed in well over, what, 4,000 years now nearly, or 3,000 years since the Tower of Babel experience, pretty close to 4,000 years, the names have changed. But in looking at the map, you'll notice that the territory being described has not changed at all. It's the same. You'll see the area around northern uh, Africa, over to the east of Media and Parthia and Elam. Remember the Parthenites they mentioned here? And all of southern Europe, Asia Minor. All of this is the same territory. So what, what is the point? 
what is really going on then in this passage. Simply that God promised to empower the disciples for them to become witnesses. And we know from the very famous passage and well-known and well-memorized passage in Acts chapter 8, you shall be witnesses unto me in Judea, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the other parts of the earth. And those other parts of the earth in the day that this was spoken in Acts chapter 2 was the known world that we see on this map of Acts chapter 2 here. And where those particular nations and these peoples are located. So what's taking place? God is still in the process of reclaiming this earth for himself. And he has determined to use people like you and I to do it. That's why he said to go out into all the world and be witnesses of me. Teaching all nations, he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And to do so until he returns. Now, another thought to continue with is simply this, that God has instituted a very bold program for restoring the earth in the preaching of the gospel. Now, of course, it's not going out and reclaiming it and us bringing in God's kingdom. It is us sharing the good news about his coming kingdom and his indwelling us and empowering us with the Holy Spirit to go and preach that gospel and proclaim it to the nations of the earth. Now, having said all of that, um, he told them, um, well, I think you should turn over there in Romans chapter 1. Now, of course, we know what took place in, in the book of Acts, which we often, and maybe you've heard it, called not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit of God was actively involved in the lives of the disciples, the apostles now, sent ones, who were going out, preaching the gospel, and going to the Gentile nations. And I find it interesting that in the opening letter of the epistles, with the book of Romans, with the Apostle Paul, Notice what he says. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, a sent one, separated unto the gospel of God. He was a sent one, separated for a particular purpose, the gospel of God. And he says, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness 
by the resurrection from the dead. Verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith, where? Among all nations for his name. Paul's just continuing on what God started way back 2,000 years ago. And Paul continued that on, and we are to continue that same thing today. God has empowered us. And this is one of the things that I guess I lack, but I want. And I want to have it manifested in me and see God use it in me is for his power to be evident in me and to be used in him in sharing that good news. I think of people like James and Dwight. Man, what a bold witness. Leaving his country, going to Burundi, going to such small insignificant so-called the world tribe as the Abakwa people to share the gospel with them. Or I think of Jackie. Sharing the scriptures with God's people. The Jew. Or Ken. Going down to St. Vincent to teach. But it's no different for you and I. When we walk out these doors, to be a witness. It doesn't matter if they don't want to hear. God didn't say only be a witness if they're willing to listen. He just said be a witness. Share the good news. If you trust the Lord, God will find a way for you and I to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And we can do it. When he said for the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name. Among all nations. He's simply talking about. When people do what John 1.12 says. And they receive Christ. They believe on his name. And God then. Takes them as his own children. <coughs> And if we are faithful and obedient to walk with him in obedience, he will nurture us along and grow us as followers of his. And we can become obedient. We can become, that's not what I want to say. We've already said being obedient. I want to say we can become the kind of witness that he wants us to be in, in, in sharing that good news. In other words, when we talk about the hope of the gospel, God's son is going to come back and he is going to reclaim this earth and he is going to subdue all the enemies of those nations of this world. You know, that could have happened with Israel had they been obedient. But now he's doing it spiritually through us. There is not a physical temple or we go to worship. God resides in us. We are his temple. And you know also the church 
is his temple. When we are gathered together, this is just like the Holy of Holies. You know, when Paul says, know ye not that ye are the temple of God, he uses the word not us, which is the word for the Holy of Holies. That's us. When we assemble together in unity, in belief, and trusting in him to be what he's called us to be. Now, over in Revelation chapter 20, just to jump ahead, of course, to the end, he says in chapter 20 and verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares, who has a portion in the first resurrection. Why is that? Because those who have a portion in the first resurrection are those who will get to participate in the coming rule of Christ and they will share in that coming rule. It says there in that passage, they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the whole purpose. God's reclaiming of the earth. Man being elevated back to that position that God had for him in the, in the beginning. And you know what? When that happens, heaven and earth are going to be united together once again. That's why, and by the way, you remember what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? He says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? If you're going to judge angels, then that means we have to be elevated to high positions above angels. To positions of ruling authority in the heavens. Angels reside in heaven. Now, of course, I think the New Jerusalem shows us that we're going to have access. We can go in and out. We'll have access between heaven and earth once again. So God's plan is a very, in some ways, a very simple one. But it's taken many, many years. And it's still taking some time yet. But we're coming to the end. When he's, this is all going to be fulfilled. And Christ is going to come back. And the question is then, will we be ready? Will we have done our part? Will we have a share? You remember how Jeroboam says, Hey, David, Jesse, we don't have a share in you. We don't have a portion in you. Don't reject it. Don't turn it away like Esau did. Don't like those Hebrew 6 believers who turned it away and rejected it. Grasp it. Embrace it. Take it to heart and determine that you're going to walk with God and be obedient to Him for your whole life. Just a few years won't do. I'm, I'm talking about now a few years and then departing and doing whatever you want to do. I'm talking about a few years won't last. Now, if you've only got a few years left and you're just now making that decision, it'll count for everything. That's why I think the writer of Hebrews said, as I've told you many, many, many times, these all died in faith. It's important how you die. Not just to say that I believe in Jesus, but they died in faith, believing in Jesus, living for him, walking before him. And that's what he's calling us to do. 
And we can fulfill then that missionary mandate ourselves by walking faithfully before the Lord. That's what God's doing in the world today. We need to be a part of it. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for giving us such privileged positions as believers to walk before you and to walk with you to know that your presence is with us, to know that you desire to fellowship with us. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would be filled with that love of God that you've shed abroad in hearts who are willing to walk in obedience and to faithfully fulfill the word which you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.